Welcome to the Treadwells Podcast with your host, Christina Oakley Harrington, and very special guest, Moon Laramie. This podcast was recorded via Zoom on the 20th of October 2020. Unfortunately, we experienced some technical issues during this recording, resulting in Christina's audio dropping in and out throughout the interview. Happily, Moon's audio was not affected. For more podcasts and online content such as our popular introductory video tutorials, please visit www.treadwells-london.com forward slash treadwells online. Good evening and welcome to Treadwell's podcast. I'm Christina Harrington and I'm speaking today to Moon Laramie, who is the author of a new release called Blavatsky Unveiled. And um, I'm really excited to be talking to you, Moon. Thank you for coming on board. It's really lovely to have you here. We are really in a moment which I would say is a theosophy revival starting to happen. And it's really timely that Moon has done a modern translation, uh, Blavatsky Unveiled, bringing uh, some of Blavatsky's writings to modern English. Um, Moon, uh, so lovely to have you here. It's wonderful to be here. Now, you're one of the reasons that I'm really interested in theosophy at the moment. Um, my friendship with you and uh, your partner, Martin, has been just really made me focus back in on theosophy, along with all the art stuff happening that's going on at the moment. Theosophy is something that a lot of occultists know, know that they should know something about, but actually don't. Um, and you are somebody who actually knows about theosophy. Um, and so I'm curious, because it, I think of theosophy as being something the Victorians were into, and maybe a few people who are in their 80s and 90s now. Um, but you're... you're Listeners, uh, Moon is not in that age group. Um, tell me, how did you get involved? Because you're, you're, to me, you seem young for somebody who's actively involved in theosophy. So there must be a story there. Well, I first um, heard about Madame Blavatsky uh, when I read Gary Lackman's biography of her. And I just thought she was wonderful. She was so enigmatic and inspirational and also incredibly naughty and, and <laughs> cheeky as well. And I thought to myself, I wonder if the Theosophical Society still exists today. Um, so I found out that it did. And I went down and attended a few talks and, and lectures. And I thought the whole thing was wonderful. So the rest is history, really. I, I, I joined in 2015 and I haven't looked back. Uh, the, the, the Theosophical Society building in London, those who haven't seen it, is incredible. It's really an amazing Victorian uh, building. It's this like enormous building in Marylebone, and it is. They always do these amazing classes and things. So, uh, so you you started with Gary Lachman, and then you went down and you thought, "I'm going to check this out in real life." Uh, theosophy. Tell us some more. I mean, the, the the things that we know about theosophy, other than like we're going to come back to Madame Blavatsky, who's incredible. But theosophy's core ideas are something that we kind of know a bit about sort of the astral plane sort of chakras um god what did you learn about first in terms of her ideas and then what have you gotten into since then and what what would somebody who sort of doesn't really know theosophy what are some what are some of the summer sort of ideas we should that we're kind of familiar with well um theosophy is 
kind of founded on, on three core principles, really. Um, and the first one is one that's very uh, relevant to us in, in modern society, I think, and that is that the whole of humanity is part of a universal brotherhood slash sisterhood. Um, and that's regardless of race, nationality, gender, religion, sexuality, um, basically every possible aspect of, of human diversity. Um, and so I think, you know, for, for us as uh, kind of 21st century thinkers, that's a very attractive proposition. And that really is at the core, at the heart of theosophy. The second principle um, is that theosophists engage in the comparative study of uh, religion and philosophy and science to find out where there's commonality between all of them. Uh, so a big part of theosophy is that there's a single root source to all of the different religions, but they tell their story in different ways, but you can trace them all back to the same source. So you can be a theosophist and also be pagan or Buddhist or agnostic. And you don't, there isn't a, a hardcore doctrine. I mean, theosophy takes um, a position on different kind of spiritual concepts, but you can totally disagree with certain aspects of, of theosophical thought and still be a theosophist. In fact, someone said to me, you can get three theosophists in a room together and they won't agree on anything. Uh, so that, that, that's the second principle. And then the third principle is the wonderful spooky one of um, investigating the latent hidden powers within human beings. So clairvoyance, um, astral travel, um, you know, investigating past lives and all of those kind of marvellous things. So that's, that's, that, those are the three core uh, things at the heart of, uh, of theosophy. I want to start with the first one, um, the, what, that hu the common humanity, the affirmation of common humanity across religion, sexuality, race, ethnicity. And, and interesting, it, it just struck me as you're speaking that that's the first one. And I find myself thinking about all the work that theosophists did, you know, and possibly to this day, you know, dismantling colonialism, challenging racism. Um, and it, yeah, how have you seen that play out in the world in your investigations of Madame Blavatsky and, and other early theosophists? Well, um, they, did, they did a lot of stuff, didn't they? In that, yeah. in that it's in, in affirming human equality. Yes, I mean, um, Blavatsky upset the, the Raj and upset the Christian missionaries in India because she was very outspoken um, that uh, Indian people were, were being told that their culture uh, and their religion was, was kind of inferior. Um, and she said, this is just nonsense. So uh, the British Raj were <clears throat> desperate to get rid of her. And, and so were the Christian missionaries. Uh, and then, of course, Annie Besant took over as, as um, the president of the Theosophical Society. In fact, Blavatsky was never the president. She was a secretary. It was Henry Alcott who started out as the, as the first president. But then Annie Besant um, was very involved in, in social reforms. Um, there's this marvellous story as well that she was married to a kind of hellfire and brimstone um, preacher. And uh, his congregation were very, very impoverished. And she, she stood up in the middle of one of his sermons and said, this is just nonsense. You're, you're, you're preaching all this stuff, but it's actually doing these people no good. And he told her that she had to just, you know, obey him and, and, and shut up and sit down. And she just walked out. And um, 
then then she came to London and she got involved with um, supporting um, social equality. She was uh, instrumental in in the Match Girls um, strike. So she uh, kind of uh, pulled them all together. She did, she didn't lead it, but she was instrumental in kind of firing them up to to stand up against the the working conditions that that they had and 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 to improve conditions for workers. She was very passionate about all of those those kind of issues. Um, and and in terms of, of equality and gender equality today, I mean, in the Theosophical Society, there are a lot of prominent women um, still. So, for example, the international president uh, was uh, Radha Bernia. She was president for 35 years and uh, it's a pretty long run. Um, and uh, also Isis Resende is, is the, the head of the American, the Inter-American Theosophical Association. So there's a lot of, of kind of good stuff around equality in in theosophy. That's why I like it. <laughs> and then if we touch on the, the, the third one, which is you know, the, the hidden powers, you know, the commitment to exploring the hidden powers of the human consciousness, soul and the human mind, and, and the hidden powers, of course, is where we hidden. Um, and I love the, that it's like, you know, we don't know, we're not saying what they all are, that we know what they are, but that it's, they're worth exploring. That we have capacities that we, that we don't even, we don't even necessarily begin to, 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 to master and some of them we, we barely begin to understand. Um, and to certain societies they've explored them more than ours and, and a bit more open about them. Um, it's a side of philosophy that, however, that I don't see, hear, tell much of. Um, I know in the early writings, for example, you know, there's a lot of painting auras. There's a very famous book now, Thought Forms, um, painting auras, seeing auras, feeling the energies of rooms. Um, are people still, you know, what, 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 what about that do you like? And what, is there any work going on around that? Or is that a private individual pursuit for theosophists today? I, I think it, it is a, a more of a private pursuit because uh, people that I know will talk about, you know, somebody will say that they read auras. Uh, somebody else will say that they practice astral projection. Um, so I think it's kind of something which is left for individuals to explore because we're all at different stages, I think, in terms of our, our abilities um, and, and di different levels of development. So there aren't specific classes on, on how to um, travel astrally. There, there are books written by theosophists, for example. There's a guy called Eric McGough um, who runs the Theosophical Diploma course, and he, I think, has written the book on on astral travel and, and practicing astral projection and I know theosophists that have, have practiced that so I think it's yeah it's, it's very much left up to to the individual I mean I'm fascinated by uh, my past lives so I've kind of investigated that because when I I studied Reiki and I became a Reiki master and, and during my um, final Reiki attunement I had this amazing experience where I traveled back through through loads of different incarnations um, and it was absolutely fantastic. It literally was like being in the present moment with, with you know, surrounded by solid things and, and really, really experiencing every second of it. So for me, that's, that's the thing that I'm investigating. And, but for other people, it, it's different. So it's up to the individual. Wow. And point is, 
is, is I'm going to come back to it in a second, but that third point about the, the hidden powers and leaving them up to an individual to explore them and allowing for the fact that people are going to have different aptitudes or different levels of interest, even in that when we get to something like ceremonial magic, which is partly owes a great, great debt to philosophy, you find people doing ceremonies in a large setting. That's Lord of the Golden Dawn profoundly influenced by theosophy in many ways, but they do ceremonies. And we think of the golden ceremonies because those scripts. But the thing that, that really struck me when I looked at the golden dawn is there were a lot of kind of psychic development circles, so to speak, where people would, you know, do journeys together or explore different levels of the inner plane, sometimes in small groups. And again, those were often groups of um, friends. So you have the Order of Golden Dawn is quite large, but then people would do things with the people they wanted to or who had a similar interest. And I think that's a great gift that Theosophy has given to the whole Western mystery tradition, this understanding that this just acceptance of doing things uh, according to your inclination and to your ability and to what you want to work on. It's nowhere near as, as rigid and structured as... I think yes, as you as, as people often expect that it is if they go into exercises. but really historically it's kind of like yeah but I like this person or I'm good at that or I want more of that um so thank you thank you to the theosophists for that for that for that openness and then the, the, the I promise to come back to the second point the, the comparative study of comparative religion, the belief that there's a roots or their core I so there's a hidden side to every religion moves dust towards the universal. It's not, you know, it points to some universal truth. Uh, how's, that, how's that side of theosophy been for you? Um, I've, I've lost you a bit there. Oh. Going in and out. But um, yeah, if you just want to say that again, because it, it kind of, I don't think it's you. It's, it's, it's kind of, the connection might be fading in and out there. So, um, what what kinds of explorations have you found yourself doing about comparative religion and the hidden side of those religions? Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophists have said that religions have an inner side that is a hidden side that has a you know kind of esoteric meanings. Uh, how's that explored by you and by other Theosophists today? Um, well, there are people who are quite knowledgeable on, on specific subjects. So um, I attended um, a few sessions, a study group session on esoteric Christianity. And, uh, and Isis Resende, who I mentioned before, has um, done a lot of work on that, um, investigating esoteric Christianity. So um, for me, I, I've always had quite a negative experience of organised religion and particularly organized Christianity. So for me to explore the esoteric side was a revelation because, um, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, um, there are all these things in, in, in Christianity that I don't particularly resonate, that they don't resonate with me so much. Um, but then to discover all these hidden, hidden messages and codes and, and different numerical things that mean different things. Um, I mean, I, I've just scratched the surface really just by attending a few a few talks, but I, I, I'm really interested in, in exploring that side, but I haven't got around to it yet. I'm too busy with my past lives. 
Um, one of the things that you did, which resulted in the book coming out, is that you started engaging with Madame Blavatsky's own writings. Um, and we have Blavatsky unveiled, um, which is just, just, just out. we're really excited about. How did you, what's the story of you deciding to do, as it were, I'm going to call it a modern translation. You may not. I mean, Madame, Madame Blavatsky wrote in very, very convoluted Victorian English. Um, you're tr you translated it into clear modern English so to make it easier to read, presumably, but somehow you must have thought that was a necessary idea. Tell, tell me how that came about. Um, well, theosophists will always say that you dip into Madame Blavatsky, so you dip into the secret doctrine or you dip into Isis Unveiled, but I don't like to do um, what everybody else does, so if somebody says to me dip in, I think I'm going to start at the beginning. <laughs> okay. So I was doing that and um, as you say, it's, it's very, very dense. I mean, it's beautifully written, but it, you know, you get sentences which are incredibly long, lots of passive, uh, you know, lots of stuff is written in the passive, lots and lots of uh, subordinate clauses and, and you kind of get a little bit lost in it. And I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll make notes on the page um, that I'm reading so that it helps me if I come back to that page again, I, I, I know, you know, I've, I've got explanations of everything, but there just wasn't enough room on the page for all the notes. So then I was talking to Martin, my husband, and he said, well, why don't you just do each sentence in modern English? Uh, because then you've got it for posterity. And also that she makes so many references to things that, you know, I wasn't familiar with and people that I wasn't familiar with. So to put that all into a book and have all of those references, that was really how it, how it started. Um, just kind of, it was for my own personal pleasure really, and my own understanding. And then I got really into it and I thought, well, you know, if other people want to, to, to have this as well, then they, then they can. So is Blavatsky unveiled, Isis unveiled in modern English? Yes, I wanted to start where she started and because I'm a bit of a theosophical toddler, really, I mean, there, I know people that have been doing theosophy for like 40 years. I've been doing it for five years. So I'm a bit of, preco a, bit of a precocious toddler in a way. So I, um, I thought I'll start where she started. And um, obviously, Isis Unveiled, it's two volumes and um, it's about 15... Um, Oh, it's not, I can't even remember how long it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely enormous, Isis Unveil, both volume one and volume two. So, um, Levatsky Unveiled volume one is the first seven chapters of volume one of Isis Unveiled. So it's the first half of volume one. Um, and that's taken four and a half years. So um, I've got another 15 years to go before I get to the end of Isis Unveiled, the whole thing. What stands out for you? Or what, what, ha what did this process do for you when you uh, read it and when you're finding, reading your own translation, you're reading it in modern English? Um, did it change your view of Madame B or her ideas? Or did you see her in a new light? Uh, well, as I, said, as, as I said earlier, she's very cheeky. And that really comes through. I mean, there's... The one thing about the book is it's a wonderful spiritual document, you know, that, that relates to modern times as well, because it's kind of timeless, all of the things that she's talking about. But the other thing about it is it's a wonderful historical document, because at the time she was writing, 
two things were really on the rise, spiritualism and material science. So she describes this kind of conflict between the two. And obviously she's on, on the side of in, investigating supernatural occurrences and, and, and investigating that more. But the scientists that she describes, some of them are very, very accepting of, of investigating the supernatural and others are very dismissive. And she, um, for example, she'll describe um, skeptical scientists as um, dishonorable gentlemen engaging in dishonorable conduct because they disagree with her. But the, the scientists who want to investigate the supernatural, like William Crookes, are noble and eminent gentlemen. So, you know, that wonderful kind of cheeky um, voice of hers comes through as, as you're investigating the text. And it's, it's, it's got so much richness in it from her personality and from, from the fact that it is a historical document and um, a wonderful spiritual, um, it's a spiritual adventure. I mean, there's, there are wonderful stories that she tells about supernatural incidents. Um, so you've got um, Indian conjurers making um, seeds grow to, to, in, into plants in, in two minutes um, using, using the power of, of kind of um, their, their thought processes. And then you've got um, phantom dogs and um, phantom plumes of smoke following people around. And um, you've got perpetual lamps in, in Roman tombs, you know, that, that have burnt forever. And it's, it's, it's just a fantastic, I mean, there's just so much richness in it. Um, it's difficult to pin it all down, to be honest. So she's, she's a great storyteller as well. Yes, yes, she is. She is. Um, and she links everything up. I mean, she'll, she'll give an example of, um, of how a sceptical scientist will... Uh, there's this guy called Babinet, and he, he describes um, how he doesn't think that spiritualist phenomena are real. And then he, he gives an example of how there was this guy who was a tailor who was sitting in his front room and a ball of fire came down his chimney and it turned into a cat and it started walking around his legs and he was so surprised that he fell over and then this this um this fire cat went back up the chimney again and babinet says that was just lightning he just explains it away as as, as a bizarre occurrence of, of lightning and this guy imagined that it was it was looking like a cat but blavatsky says he's just used an example of a supernatural phenomena to discount <laughs> supernatural phenomena so she kind of brings all these things in to support her argument in very kind of inventive ways. And she doesn't do anything. You, you think to yourself, oh, what's she talking about this for now? But then you soon find out that she's got a good reason for, for talking about what she's talking about. So, um, you know, everything's very, very meticulously thought out in, in, in what she does. She's worth hanging in there with. She know? is, yes, definitely. She, she brings it around. In these um, first seven chapters, which make up, this book, first of four volumes of this. What are the main ideas that she's conveying? You know, what, what's she trying to say at this stage of writing? What does she feel that her listeners and her readers should be taught about? What, what do we need to know? Well, Isis unveiled, when, when she's using the word Isis, it's a synonym for nature. 
So she's talking about lifting the veil on nature. And what she's really talking about in terms of nature are the kind of hidden forces in nature that a lot of people don't generally understand. But some people are able to work with those forces in a very scientific way. So what she's generally saying is, is what, what people describe as magic and as, as something spooky isn't spooky at all. It's natural science, but it's a natural science of hidden forces. Um, so, for example, there, there, there's the wonderful story that she tells of, of Katie King, um, who was um, a, a spirit who appeared at seances. And she talks about how nobody could really understand what Katie King was. And when William Crooks investigated her, he said, I don't know what she really is, but she is definitely some kind of natural force. She is a force of nature. He said, I don't know whether she is the, the spirit of, of somebody who's departed, but she is definitely some kind of natural force. So she, in Isis Unveiled, she, she's starting out with this idea of there are lots and lots of hidden forces in nature that we really don't understand. And, but she talks about how ancient civilizations did understand them. And we've kind of fallen out of that understanding as we've become more and more material and our eyes have become more and more fixed on, on, on the material world. So there's a lot of stuff about um, natural forces, supernatural forces, and lots of different examples of what they are and um, how people might use them. Although she doesn't go into that much detail about how to use them. She just gives plenty of examples. More like a, a way showing. So here we have this in India, here we have this here, here we have this there. It sounds like it would, you know, my experience of reading bits of Madame Blavatsky is that you just think, oh, well, this is really possible. It's not, it's not how to, but it's, uh, I found that her anecdotes, particularly, I love her little anecdotes. I, you know, weird things happen to my friends occasionally, you know, particularly when I was a child and a teenager. Yeah. Oh yes, this is possible, and then you and it sort of prompts one's own question about how I look at the world, and then how I look at you know meditation or developing psychic ability. Because she's just always there reminding us that this is this this used to be in certain places, it still is just a matter of daily life. Um, I find myself thinking also about the way that if ISIS as nature hidden forces. Um, my father-in-law was has recently been reading this book about the consciousness of trees and how trees grow and move so as they don't crush one another and they send messages to one another this is another kind of you know hidden force of nature um that i never i never thought i'd live in an era when you know you know perfectly ordinary people are reading books about how trees talk to one another but lo and behold here we are because we're still learning I guess what I'm saying that's what the theosophy sort of says that there are these hidden forces and it doesn't seem to presume that we're gonna know all of them because it's too serious but we should definitely keep looking you know mm. yeah yeah I mean there, there's a wonderful book that I, I was prompted to read only after I came to theosophy, which is Lyle Watson's book, Supernature, um, which is, is exactly the things you're describing there, how trees will, will move um, and uh, how, how nature does all these amazing things that we don't necessarily understand why 
why they're happening. Um, and he gives lots and lots of examples. I think he talks about how you can put a rusty blade in, inside one of the pyramids in Egypt. And when you, when you go back the next morning and check it out, somehow the rust has gone. And it's to do with the structure of, of, of the pyramid and the, and, and the shape of everything. Amazing. Um, going back to your experience of writing this, or you're working with Isis Unveiled, these first seven chapters in such depth, you've said, um, seen, uh, it's just arrived two days ago at Treadwells, but it, I've seen how you have done all the references. I mean, Madame Blavatsky is famous for name dropping and famous for just like casually dropping in this person, that person, whether it's Pythagoras or Confucius. Or, or what have you. Um, and you said that you've spent a lot of time looking at, well, who was this person? What is that? What was that journey like for you um, doing all the references? I imagine that took, I mean, I could be wrong, but it, I imagine that took a lot of, a lot of the time preparing the volume. Yes, because um, what Blavatsky will sometimes do is she'll back her argument up with reference to lots of people who agree with what she's saying. Okay. But she won't pick two people. I mean, she, she'll give you a list of 25 scientists, all Victorian scientists, maybe about four of whom we know today because they're so famous, but the other, the other 20 or so we, we don't know. And she'll just list them, you know, with, with a comma after each name, <laughs> lines and lines and lines. Um, and she does it with, um, when she's talking about perpetual lamps, she mentions lots and lots of writers who uh, wrote about perpetual lamps. I mean, about 20, again, about 20 of them. But she won't give their full name. She'll just say someone like Lysetti. And I think, well, who is Lysetti? And then, then you've then got to kind of find out who it is. Is it the right Lysetti? So you then have to find the, the book they wrote or, or what they said about perpetual lamps. So it, it was a marvellous kind of, detective um, journey of being a bit of a detective really because sometimes the references are so obscure that it can take a, a, an incredibly long time to find out who she was talking about um, but of course in in her day people would probably have known because one of the things that of course we forget now is that in her day people would have had a classical education so when she throws in a lot of you know Greek philosophers who might be obscure, people would generally have, uh, have an idea of, of who they might be. But for us, we, we don't necessarily, um, a lot of people don't have a classical in, uh, education anymore. So again, that's another kind of thing which takes her a step away from us again. And you, you've got to kind of pull all the, all the references back in. So, but it was great fun because I loved it when I couldn't find out who somebody was. So I thought, she's not going to get me. I am going to beat her, you know. I'm going to beat her. I'm going to defeat her. And I'm going to find out who this person is. Um, so it was a marvellous challenge each time, uh, which was fun. I mean, the whole thing's been, been a great, great ride, really. So it's funny to think she was so well-read. She was incredibly, hugely, hugely intellectually intelligent, as well as spiritually visionary. Um, but she didn't really... As far as I remember, and my memory is imperfect, she didn't grow up with a terribly intellectual childhood, or did she? No, she was married off quite young, and then she ran away, horse riding away across the steps, and so, you know, in a, some sort of boat crash in the Mediterranean, and, you know, tremendously adventurous person. But how does an adventurous person 
read so much that they can drop all these names. I mean, I'm, I'm, I always find that she keeps surprising me that way. Yeah, she, um, she, her family were quite well off, I think. Mm. So and she had a governess, an English governess, who um, educated her. And um, that's the reason she got married. She got married for a bet because her English governess said that she was so willful and uncontrollable that no man would have her. Um, you know, assuming obviously that was the pinnacle of, uh, of your achievement is to get married. But um, Blavatsky then kind of took this as a challenge and, and her governess said, um, old Nikafor Blavatsky over there, you know, this, this old um, guy who was, well, he was 45 at the time and, and Helena um, was, was just 17. Her governess said, he, not even he would want to marry you. So she took this as a challenge and she kind of, um, you know, made advances towards him and complimented him, et cetera, et cetera, and wooed him, which probably quite easy. And he, he asked her to marry him. So, um, so, so she was kind of very, very willful, but I think she, she did have a, quite a, um, a privileged background to begin with. But, and her great grandfather, she went to stay with her great grandfather quite often, and he had an enormous library. Okay, so she had access to the books from that yeah. age when you have to be, you become hugely well-read. You've got to start early. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lots, lots of occult books as well. Lots of occult books he had. Mm. And do, do you know much about what was happening in her life when she wrote Isis Unveiled? I'm trying to envisioning her at a desk, presumably surrounded by some books anyway. Yeah, I mean, she, she just um, formed the Theosophical Society in, in, in 1875. Mm -hmm. And um, she wanted, I think, in a way for there to be a handbook to it. I mean, not a kind of a great sort of um, religious book in a way, but, but a kind of handbook um, for theosophists and, and to get the, the, the ideas down on paper and, and, and bring them out. Um, so I think that was her intention at the time to kind of tell the, the, the theosophical story because the theosophical society, when it started out, um, there were lots and lots of, of very successful people. I mean, the editor, I think of the New York times was a theosophist and then later WB Yeats joined the theosophical society. So um, lots of high society people who were looking for something new joined the theosophical society. So I think that was really where she was, she was coming from. She, she wanted to, to produce um, a book that, that was kind of a legacy and, 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 and a handbook for theosophists. But she said also um, that theosophists shouldn't, shouldn't take anything on face value. So, you know, that's why there's no real dogma in theosophy. She said, you've got to investigate things for yourself. And she said, don't believe what everybody tells you, including me. And she also said, don't revere me. Um, but she also said, you know, rather cheekily that what, once she, on, on, on the day that she died, obviously it's now White Lotus Day. And that is, is kind of remembered by theosophists every year. And she kind of said, you know, oh, you could do a day to remember me. after." <laughs> so, so she was marvelously cheeky as well and sort of, um, you know, sort of push the boundaries, which I, I think is marvelous. And I think that should be celebrated in her as well. Last time, last time we spoke um, a week or two ago, we were talking about how cheeky she was, how, uh, to use English language, bolshy in many yeah. ways. She was a um, rebel. 
um, huge personality. Uh, so you read um, Gary Lackman's book, uh, biography of her, and that got you started. The one that really got me started is a biography called Madame Blavatsky's Baboon. Mm. And the title comes from how she lived in a New York flat with various wild animals, including a baboon. And I just remember this image from that biography of how she would chain smoke, possibly spliffs, um, and just drop the ash into the plant pots. You know, the Victorians love their palms, their potted palms, and so she would just drop the ashes on people's carpets and in their potted palms. And her favorite food was deep fried eggs that she would just willy-nilly being vegetarian she needed some protein and a lot of eggs and she would just like she'd lose her temper a lot as well you know call people flap doodle and various other kind of you know sort of extravagantly funny names when she would get irritated i remember thinking you're like grabbing life with both hands mm. yeah i mean she she did she i mean she, well, she traveled around the world and um she had plenty of adventures and there's one story that she told of how she um, joined Garibaldi fighting against the Papal States. And she, um, she was injured and she would show her battle scars to her, uh, her friends and, and, and acquaintances of when she fought um, in Garibaldi's forces. And I just think that's a marvelous story, but I mean, no one knows whether it's true or not. Um, and I think that's another marvellous thing about her, that, that she would kind of embellish occasionally. I mean, one of the things that she said about marrying Nikifor Blavatsky when she was 17, she, she would tell people that she married him when she was 17 and he was 45. But if, if the mood took her, she'd tell people that she was 15 and he was 75. Right. <laughs> you know, I suppose depending on, on, on how much of a story she, she wanted to tell that, that particular evening. And I think that's just, um, it's a wonderful thing, I think, to, to give colour and richness to, to the world. And, and if somebody, you know, embellishes, embellishes a little bit, I, I just think, oh, that, that's great, really. You know. People who embellish are people who've got too much personality rather than too little. And, you know, having a big personality is a lot about force of life and colorfulness and um i think her to me it seems like her personality being so vivacious and vibrant and curmudgeonly at times it sits uncomfortably but absolutely complementarily with the grand and serene and profound messages that you have in theosophy you know just like quality of all human beings um, the truth in all religions and, you know, the powers, all that seems very, it could be very bland, but with Madame Blavatsky's personality driving it as a founder, it's kind of, to me, it seems like a reminder, like, well, yes, all of that, but still you can be a really extraordinarily unique person to the hilt, complete with embellished anecdotes. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of Madame B. I think I, I think I would have found her a bit difficult at parties. Um, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know. I don't know. Does that seem a bit mad? No. I mean, I I think all um, kind of great mystics and and, and seers uh, do have big personalities. Um, so I think also, I mean, we, you know, we're all on on a journey, aren't we? And nobody's perfect and and i think you know if you if you were given to sort of um telling the odd tall tale for a bit of fun 
um, that doesn't mean that you're not spiritual, does it? Or, or that you've not got a, a, an important message to give, or you've not done, done a hell of a lot of hard work investigating um, occult and esoteric ideas and different books and, 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 and pulling all those, those things together. So um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult, I think, to find anybody really who, who is a who is a great, great leader spiritually, who hasn't got a big, big personality. And, and I think that's wonderful, really, in all those people. I mean, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Alistair Crowley used to um, take on different pers personas, didn't he? And, and pretend he was an aristocrat, just for the fun of it, um, which I think is marvelous. It's exactly the kind of thing Blavatsky would have done as well, I think. Yeah, there's a story about Crowley, um, you know, putting on various different garbs, you know, checking into hotels, pretending to be a sheikh, yeah. going, you know, then the next next port of call in another country, checking into the next the five star hotel where he'd be staying the next part of his journey under a completely different name with a completely different costume. Um, with a different pretend persona that he then carry on, you know, in the lobby when chatting with the other guests or at dinner. It's just for a lark, really. Um, I don't know, people who want life to be full of spice and energy and, yeah, they've got a big message, but they just, they want to have life with life, you know? Um, also, Grudyev was another one. Very, very big personality. Yes. yes. But we find it more with um, again, that drive and and the big personality and the spiritual leaders sits more comfortably with how men are raised than women. You know, she was raised to to marry and be a wife. Socialization, even amongst Russian aristocrats, to be a subservient to your husband. There's some, if, uh, and she she overcame that in a way that I think Crowley. And Gurdjieff and other male teachers didn't have to. So I give her even even more credit for her feistiness. Yeah, I mean, she um, she was having none of it when when she actually married Blavatsky. Um, the the priest said to her, "Do you promise to um, obey your husband?" And she said, "I certainly do not." And uh, it, it wasn't. I mean. It, she she didn't let him have his conjugal rights from from the moment they were married. I mean, she was fighting him off every day, and and he kept her under house arrest for about three months at his um, at, at the, the the palace that he was staying at because he was a provincial governor, and he kept her under house arrest. And she kept saying, you know, can I go out and you know go horse riding? And that was how she got away. He sent her with a guard. And, and she went horse riding. And as this guy was, I think they had a picnic. And as this guy was sitting down after his picnic, having a doze, she jumped on, on a horse and rode off into the sunset. Um, but to return? Never to return, no. So, um, so she really was kind of uh, exceptional for those times because she, she just was not going to um, uh, be a hostage to convention at all in, in any way and also I mean as, as a woman traveling on her own uh, um, um, so that was quite a, a thing that, that wasn't acceptable to a lot of people in, in, in those days um, so yeah she was quite a character I, I want everybody to get to know her and I think those of us who you know aren't feisty enough could take her cheekiness um, and and also know that it, it's not 
can be cheeky and fighty and smoke spliffs and drop the ashes in other people's carpets and still be still be cool, you know, um, but not my carpet. <laughs> so Blavatsky Unveiled is just out. Um, are you taking a rest before you're going into volume two or are you, are you in, it, in it to win it? Um, I'm, I'm on chapter eight, uh, you know, at the moment. I'm working on chapter eight at the moment. So, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of something I do each day for a few hours a day and, and then go on to other, other bits of writing. So, um, yeah, I, 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 personally, it's not a good idea to leave it too long because if you do it every day, you're kind of in that flow of how she's talking and, and how she's writing. And it's easier. If, I find if I leave a gap, it becomes a bit of a harder mountain to climb when I go back to it. So, um, and it's little steps every day, you know, and then you find, oh, I've done chapter eight. Oh, I've done chapter nine. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm working on it at the moment. Oh gosh, well, I, I hope that we have another podcast when that one comes out, if not before. And thank you so much for sharing a bit about philosophy and what, what its ideas are and the core principles. And I think everybody listening I, I can't recommend highly enough to read Isis Unveiled in the first seven chapters in Moon's modern translation. It's called Blavatsky Unveiled and it's available at Treadwells and, and all fine bookstores. And uh, Moon, I can't wait for the next bit. And I hope you're going to tell us more about Madame Blavatsky and her ideas. I hope we see you dotted around in, uh, in, in, the, in the London and the UK and, and online. You're doing a lot of recordings and short articles and I, I'm really excited how much you're doing because I think you're very much part of the theosophical renaissance which is happening around us to this day so um, thank you again for coming on oh thank you I, I've had a wonderful time um, it's br you're brilliant at interviewing <laughs> you make me feel very relaxed it's just like having a chat to, oh. to a great friend which it is really <laughs> anybody who's listening if you ever come to london and you want to pop into treadwell's moon and moon is often uh nearby uh if he's not up at his country house uh but he lives in london as well which is how he and i became friends and uh i'm really really hoping that when covid is over um we will have an opportunity for you to do uh an illness a slide lecture and maybe some readings of Blavatsky unveiled so everybody should listen up for that and, and uh, Moon you can um, I know, practice your reading voice get your slides ready that sounds marvellous <laughs> thank you again and goodbye everybody thank you bye we hope you enjoyed this Treadwells podcast for information on future events, as well as books, tarot cards, candles, and more, please visit www.treadwells-london.com.